You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. We got any tailgaters? We got a few tailgaters. You ever been tailgating? Do you know what tailgating is? Right? Tailgating is this unique phenomenon um, during football season primarily. I know that there are some you know, ultra tailgaters that do it for other sports. But primarily it's for football during college football season, NFL football season, where people will go hours before the, the game, right, and, and post up and drink heavily, you know, soda and lemonade, and uh, eat grilled food that's really, really healthy for you and enjoy all of the elements. You know, it's not a lot, a lot of rain. It's usually perfectly... Um, sunny outside during playoff football and things like that, being facetious. Okay, but if you're unfamiliar with tailgating, it's kind of like Black Friday. You know, when you wake up and you, you get there early to, for the store to open, uh, except for it happens every week, all right? Tailgating happens every week, and you don't get a discount at the uh, football games. You actually probably going to pay a premium, right? You're going to pay... Um, and you're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money. So, this past January, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, who made it to the Super Bowl, played the Kansas City Chiefs, right? The Philadelphia Eagles, in their divisional playoff game, had a home game in Philly. They were playing against the New York Giants. Real close rivalry there. And so, if you know anything about uh, fandom in the NFL, that it's a pretty polarizing topic. Specifically, Philadelphia Eagles fans are, you're either one of them or you're the scum of the earth, okay? The Eagles fans are the definition of what a fanatic is. You know, they are known to turn on on game days, they'll turn the city upside down. They flip cars over, they'll pull street signs down, pull uh, stoplights down and all that, and that's, that's when they win, Right? So this is uh, a unique, they are kings of tailgating. So this divisional playoff game in January, they're playing a, the Jets, I'm sorry, the Giants in Philly at Lincoln Financial Field. Now, the city, trying to get ahead of this craziness, what they decided was that Lincoln Financial Stadium was not going to be open to the public. The game was an evening, it was a night game. They wouldn't open the parking lot, facilities. There was no entrance to the stadium until 4 p.m. to try to mitigate some of the rowdiness that was going to happen. Here's what Eagles fans did. If you pull up a a picture of Lincoln Financial Stadium, you can see that there's a smaller stadium just just beyond it, like just 100, maybe 400 yards away from Lincoln Financial Stadium where this playoff game is going to happen. It just so happened that that morning, at 8 in the morning, there was a big lacrosse match. So you know what the Eagles fans did? They found a loophole in this city's situation, right? They bought all of the lacrosse tickets for one reason and one reason only. In this map, you can see there's a small sliver of road that connects the parking lot of this lacrosse stadium to the stadium at Lincoln Financial where the Eagles are going to play right? The lacrosse people are like, finally, you know, people are seeing that lacrosse is great, you know, all the tickets are sold up, and it's, it's, but little did they know, it was just a, uh, a, a hoax there for Eagles fans 
to get in so they could start tailgating at 8 in the morning. All right? This is, to me, an incredibly clear visual of commitment and loyalty and devotion of a fan base to, in a sense, say, I know I'm spending money on these tickets and all this you know, food and stuff before the game, but I'm going to do whatever it takes I'm going to make it happen just to be closer to my team, just to be closer to people that share this bond, this devotion to our team, the Eagles. Today, the passage, I believe we see a similar picture in the person of Mary Magdalene and her commitment and loyalty and devotion to the Lord. We look at this passage, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take notice of two things. I want you to look at the posture of Mary's heart. That is to say, just see her default. What is the, her default responses to this, to this story? And, and take notice of just the purity of her devotion. What comes naturally to her. I was challenged. I was encouraged. My hope is that it would do the same for you this morning as we open up. It's a very beautiful story. But before we jump into the text, I want to just give a little context of, of to who is Mary Magdalene. It's a very common name in Christendom. We know who she is just from other accounts, just from the name, name alone, right? Um, before we know anything about her, most everyone would agree she is one of the most revered followers of Jesus for her commitment and devotion, as I've mentioned. But what we know about her life prior to when we meet her is very little. But what we do know is very significant, right? She is Mary called Magdalene, which in, would in, uh, inform us that she is from Magdala, Israel, which is northwest of the Sea of Galilee in this city. As you would imagine, it's a fishing city, but it's also a, a fishing um, processing town where they would process fish to be sent to other areas in the, in the area. What we know about her life prior to Luke chapter 8, which, I, like I said, is, is very minimal, but what we find out from here on is, is pretty outstanding. It's pretty wild. She was severely troubled, we read. And at one point, she had seven demons possessing her. Now, whatever was going on in her life up to that point, we can you know, extrapolate the data and understand that if you are doing something that opens your body up to seven demons possessing you at a time, it cannot be a good thing, right? But what happened in her story? She meets Jesus, he expels the demons, and then she takes seriously the call to follow him. She owes it all to him. Any and everywhere that Jesus was in his ministry, Mary wasn't far away. She, not out of compulsion, but an act of worship, funded a lot of his ministry. She was a financial supporter of the ministry along with others. And so, every part of her life was designated by a heartfelt awe and reverence to the Lord. She was so committed to him. Why? Well, I think that that, before we read of her in Luke 8, you remember the story in Luke 7 when Jesus, he was invited to dinner by the Pharisees. 
right? He comes to dinner, he reclines at the table with the Pharisees, but they offer him minimal hospitality, right? Except for this one woman that they were kind of taken back by. They're like, how did she even get in the house? But this woman who was very, very sinful is all we know about her. You can kind of imagine what that would entail. She clings to his feet and with her tears, it's very customary as you enter a home to be offered water to wipe your feet. And this is why it's so important when we see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, right? They didn't offer him this when he entered the Pharisee's home, but this woman with her tears washed, with her hair wiped his feet, right? And what does Jesus say? Luke 7, 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The love this woman displayed was the evidence that she had been forgiven. It wasn't the basis for it. Out of a response to knowing that this is the man who takes away sin. I've heard that this man takes away sin. My hope is in him. Out of that response, her faith saying she is overwhelmed with gratitude. She falls at his feet and worships. Right? This was the case for Mary Magdalene as well. She was another, just like this. Now, at the heart of our devotion and love for our Lord, there must be a humbling sense of how deeply broken and messed up you are. And if you don't, I just want to warn you, brothers and sisters, that you are more like the Pharisees than you are His nearest followers. If we don't see, truly see our need, that Jesus says, I have come to heal the sick. It's the sick that need healing, not those with health. The sick need healing. So, here's some good news before the good news. Here's some good news before we open up the Word. There could very well be someone in here this morning, or online, living with the weight of shame with what you've done in your life. The amount of guilt that you carry from, the, from your life anytime past this moment right now. It doesn't matter what has happened. It doesn't matter what you've done. Hear me. Look at Mary's life. Mary did not clean herself up. She didn't say, hey, hey you know what? Um, let me purge this plague of demons in my life. Let me get my life in order. And then I'm going to go meet Jesus and commit myself to Him and devote myself to Him. Is that what happens? No. She comes to him, broken, full of demons, and he takes it away. He cleans her. He restores her. He makes her right. I wonder if there's someone that needs that today. I wonder if someone needs wholeness today. She's made clean because she comes into contact with Jesus. She didn't do anything. He did. And just, I mean, think about it. She's in the Bible. <laughs> you know? Like, this woman, who only God knows what she has done, what she has been through, the darkness, the depravity of her life, she's in the Word. God has used and redeemed even the worst of sinners. And if you don't believe this account, Believe me when I tell you, you know why? 
You know how I know? It's because he, he saved me. He took me. He cleansed me. He can for you. So, we're going to get into the Word now, all right? Let's see Mary in this story. Unlike many who followed Jesus up to this point in the crucifixion, uh, she didn't run for the hills. She didn't head for the hills. She, stayed, she saw him. Uh, she was there during the trial. She was there during the crucifixion. Uh, and now she's here at the tomb. And let's go ahead and dig in. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Weeping, when you see this weeping, it's very customary. It was often in ancient times you would hire people to weep for you during funerals. It was, an, it was a, a sense of honor and prestige to the family. She did not have to fake it here. She was weeping hysterically. She was, it's almost presented like she's lingered there. But I just love this heart posture. I just love this default that in her desperation, in her doubt, she doesn't know what to do, but her first instinct is just to go where his body is, just to be near him. You see, my default, like I think Brandon said during our confession time, my default is so quickly when things are awry, when things are in doubt, is I want to fix it. I want to sort it out with the control, with the, the wisdom, the worldly wisdom that I have. I, I want to reach out to one of you guys to help me. My, my first instinct isn't to go to the Lord. Oftentimes, I confess. Right? We're, we're all for community here at Mercy's Door because the purpose of gospel community is to walk after Jesus together. But in times of need, if you go to someone here in the church, you go to a brother or sister who's trusted, hopefully they point you to Jesus. Right? Hopefully they point you to truth. But if you go to Jesus, he meets you every time. Would it be the default of our lives and our hearts that when things are awry, we don't, we don't call our friends first before we call on our Lord? I'm reminded of, as I was studying this, I was reminded of Psalm 30, verse 5, and how its fullness is found in Christ, that weeping and pain may endure for the night, but Joy comes in the morning. Nothing was going to stop her from being at the tomb. You know, in the previous verse, if you look back in verse 10, you see that uh, the disciples were there to see the empty tomb, but without hope, they just went home. That's all we read. Mary stayed there. This weeping was an ugly cry. You ever been there? This is an ugly cry. It was uncontrollable wailing. She couldn't stop it. And again, to me, I read this, you know, dozens of times this week, and it's just so convicting that this woman who saw Jesus die, she saw him die. She saw him wrapped, she saw him placed in the tomb, and her response and devotion, she just wants to be, she longs to be in his presence, even if the presence means this is dead, it's a corpse. Now think about that. To me, this is convicting. This is very challenging because as someone, as a people, for all of us 
who are thousands of years, a couple thousands of years removed from this story, have seen the history of the church unfold, the movement of Jesus continue after his death, after his resurrection. We very much know that he's alive, but I don't long to be in his presence like Mary does when she just knows him to be dead. That's challenging. We can be fickle, can't we? Verse 12. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So again, she's here in the middle of her breakdown and she sees two angels. Okay, You'd think that'd snap her out of it, right? But evidently these weren't the glorious angels that you might think of. They were dressed as young, strong men in white. We can understand from the other uh, gospel accounts. And this is interesting. What I, what I found here was, it's like the disciples, can I go back to the football analogy? Um, it's like when your home team is down late in the game and you're like, ah, this game's over. I'm going to beat the traffic. I'm going to leave, right? And then all, you find out that the home team mounted a huge comeback and they won, Right? That's what happens here to the disciples. Mary stayed and she got to witness these angels in front of, here in the tomb. This is the, interestingly, this is the only place in Scripture where angels are described as sitting. Almost as if, yeah, it's done. It is finished, right? Uh, One commentary I read from Exodus 25, it says, the presence and positions of, two, of the two angels were of more consequence. It is interesting that Cherubim stood at either end of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, these two angels are sitting at the head and the foot of where Jesus, our mediator, laid. Verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Again, this sight hadn't changed Mary's tears. She's still in agony. She's still sobbing. They say, woman, why are you weeping? You might hear this. It's like, you know, our, uh, I, first, yeah, I admit, I could read this as woman, why, you know, it's not the case. This is a term of endearment. It's a term of respect. Maybe if we translated it into a more modern, uh, it'd be ma'am, ma'am. Why are you, why are you weeping? Right, woman, why are you weeping? It's like they're saying to her, do you, do you really not know what's about to happen? Do you, are, you, are, you, are you really unclear? But she's still concerned that the body of her Lord be honored. Not understand that he has risen, but why would they ask her? I love this quote from theologian, author Robert Jameson of why the angels ask her this. He says, but she is in tears and these suit not the scene of so glorious an exit. They ask her because it didn't make sense. This Lord, is in, we can understand from this that she doesn't know he has risen. Mary responds, he's taken away my Lord. My emphasis added there. You've heard it 
if you've been here at any time at, at Mercy's Door, you know, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Savior, right? This is kind of like one of those things that, um, you know, not every rectangle is a square, but every square is a rectangle kind of thing. You know, Jesus is Lord. Because He is Lord, He is Savior, right? You cannot separate these two distinctions because He is, we often think if Jesus is my Savior, He has met the requirements and dealt with God's justice on my behalf. He has saved me. He has made me right. We think of Lord as He calls the shots. Now, this is something that has swept over American culture and American Christianity over the last few decades is this understanding that you can separate these two, that uh, Jesus is my Savior, but you know, I still, still got things to do. Like, he is your Savior because He is Lord of all things. You cannot separate the two. It's, it's preposterous to think that this idea that Jesus can be my fire insurance from hell, but He has no stock in my life. He owns your life. He created you. And if He has saved you, if you are His, He is your Lord, that means you are safe. It's a dangerous game to play if you kind of walk that line, folks. Now, there's still a ton of confusion on Mary's part. She doesn't know where Jesus' body is. She doesn't know who moved the body. She doesn't ultimately know that Jesus has raised. We understand this. One thing she does know Jesus is her Lord, and that's enough. I found this challenging, and I ask you, is that enough for you? Is it enough? You might not know how you're going to get through this thing that you're going through. You likely don't know why something's happening in your life. You've prayed, and like the Psalms, you've said, God, how long? How long, O Lord? When is this going to stop? When is this going to start? The when, the where, the why, the how, God. Remembering those questions, we don't know. But every time you have the question of who, God, you have an answer. And to Mary, that was enough. And to us, it should be enough. Because all of those things are, because he is, we know the character of our Lord, is a good thing that we know what we know. Right? At, at, at night, all the kids, um, they like for me to kind of tell them stories, and sometimes I'll make up stories on the fly, and sometimes I'll tell them Bible stories. And um, one of the stories that they love is um, this story that I tell that I think paints a picture of what's happening here. Is, uh, and I got this from something I read, it's not original. Um, so I tell this story, it's like, imagine if you are falling down a cliff. And you're just scratching and clawing as you continue to fall down this cliff. And you're reaching to grab onto anything. And in a last ditch effort, you grab onto this little bitty root. This little bitty root. And you're, this root is holding you from this falling into this huge precipice to your death. And as you're holding on to that root, it doesn't matter how big your faith is. It doesn't matter if you have faith that could fill this room, it doesn't matter anything of the quantity of your faith in this root, in that moment. What matters is that your faith, what matters is that you have faith in the object. Your object of your faith is what matters when you're, the, just because you have a lot of faith 
doesn't mean that this root is going to hold, but what matters is the strength of the root. What matters to Mary and what matters to us, the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, is strong enough. And if that's all you know, if I were... Uh, if I were able to, I would give answers to all of the problems and all the heartache and all of the fear and doubt and shame that you carry. But we can't. But what I do know is that Jesus is Lord. And He is good. And He wants the best for you. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She turns and is asked again, unknowing who was asked her the same thing. Woman, why are you weeping? But then what she believes to be a gardener asks, Whom are you seeking? She's still in misery she still has this pit in her stomach. Her, her chest is still ripped open. She's still in pain, and she's asked this. And now, uh, last week, I, I read this incredible article from a, a, a pastor, and he said that the, the Passion Week is a week of reversals. Check this out. He says, as we celebrate the resurrection, Jesus goes to the garden to be obedient to the Father, undoing Adam and Eve's disobedient in the garden. Adam and Eve hide behind a tree naked and covered in shame where Jesus hangs on a tree naked, naked, conquering shame. Adam and Eve have been in paradise but are forced out the gates due to the curse where Jesus dies outside the gates but ends in paradise through the cross. Beautiful, isn't it? Now here we see another reversal that echoes from the first woman, Eve, in the garden. She's asked certain questions by the serpent in order that she would succumb to the desires of her flesh. But now we see the risen Lord asking another woman in in another garden questions to restore and to comfort her. Scholars agree that this question, whom are you seeking? This question wasn't intended to gather information, but it was made to make a statement that he would lead her to the conclusion. Now, I have a little bit of a sidebar here that I hopefully this is encouraging to your faith. As I was reading this and thinking, this is the first person that he has revealed himself to. Again, the first person. We know Mary's story, right? This is who he chose to reveal himself to after the resurrection. Check this out. Edwin Bloom, a guy I've been very blessed by his work. He's, he's uh, the general editor of uh, many Bible translations, a uh, pastor, professor. He said this about Mary. The fact that he appeared to Mary rather than to Pilate or Caiaphas or one of his disciples is significant. That a woman would be the first to see him is an evidence of Jesus' electing love as well as the mark of the narrative's historicity, the historical authenticity. No Jewish, Jewish author in the ancient world would have invented a story with a woman as the first witness to the most important event. This is incredible. 
That helps my faith. She doesn't recognize him still, maybe because she's weeping. You know, it's hard to kind of have your mind right. You know, emotions are everywhere. You're, you're just out of your mind control, uncontrollably weeping. Or maybe because the last time she saw this man, he was beaten and, and torn apart beyond recognition, right? So maybe that was the last thing. Disfigurement was kind of on her mind. But still, she's beside herself, and she responds again with, just tell me where the body is. I'll take care of it. I want to be near my Savior even in his death. This is the climax of the passage, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Mary. Her name of all the things that have, could have turned her around, both physically and emotionally, is the name that she's had her whole life. This identity that has been in confusion, that in a, in a blip, she's reminded of all he has done to rescue and restore her. And isn't that all any of us want to hear? <laughs> right? To be fully known and to be fully loved and accepted is the greatest desire of mankind. You think about it. The same vocal cords that said, let there be light, and the universe was formed. The same voice that awoke from a nap on a boat during an incredible storm, looked at the storm and said, enough, be still, peace. The same voice that just a few chapters earlier peered into a tomb of Lazarus and said, get up. The same voice looks upon this woman and says, Mary, and brings her back to life, brings light where there's darkness, calms the storm inside of her. And I love that he didn't just say, Whoever has ears, hear. Right? He says that sometimes, but here he says, Mary. Mary. I love, I read a lot from a, a pastor theologian named Dr. Stephen Lawson on this. I think some of his teaching on this section of uh, John is some of the best uh, out there, in my opinion. This is what he says. Here, Jesus didn't just speak to her. He spoke into her. Amen? Imagine with me, uh, talking with my, my sister, um, I guess months ago now, but she's pumped because she got tickets to Taylor Swift, right? Um, you know, T-Swift, we got, right? Um, imagine we took a little field trip to the nearest T-Swift concert, right? Imagine with me, and we're all there, and we're chilling, and by some circumstance, we cross paths with Taylor, all right? And you're like, oh my gosh, it's Taylor. And she goes, Brett Barton? What are you doing here? You didn't tell me you were going to be here. Where's Kat? Where's the kids? Why didn't you tell me you were coming? Right? What would you think? Brett, no. I know Brett played guitar, but I didn't know he knew he knows Taylor Swift. 
right? That'd be shocking with someone that, that amount of prestige, that amount of popularity, that amount of power knows someone like me, right? If we flipped the script and we went on the same field trip and I was like, come on guys, let's gonna, and I was sneaking through doors and opening things up and then I was caught and I was like, no, 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 me and Tay-Tay, we go way back, right? It would be a different story. But it matters because the person who knows you changes the game. Mary is known by Jesus. You, if you're in Christ, are known by Jesus. Right? This moment demonstrates that Mary is known by her Lord. And her response, I think, is perfect. You see kind of the purity of her devotion in this. She says, Rabbi, in Aramaic, which means most uh, linguists understand this as an intense, my teacher. My teacher. Everything that I have been given, everything that I understand about this life, every freedom I now feel spiritually and emotionally, Rabbi, my Lord, my teacher. In just a moment, her world is righted. Let this be a reminder for us this morning that in just a moment, God can change the course of your life. Before you get to your car, is plenty of time for God to do something incredible. Don't stop praying for that thing you're praying for. Don't stop beseeching Him and seeking Him. Be comforted that that's who we serve. We're finishing it up. Verse 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. He, she realizes who it is, and she is clinging to him like she's not letting go right? And Jesus, he says, do not cling to me. Now, we got to stop here for a second and say, is this mean? Is this mean of Jesus to see this weeping woman? All she wants is to be with him, and he says this? It's like, no, no. But whenever that happens in scriptures, we have to see, we have to allow scripture to inform scripture we know the unchanging character of the Lord. We know that he is, this is a beloved disciple of his. What was once familiar is now given way to something new. And this is but a blip of kind of how we live now. This is the part of Jesus' life of the already but not yet. It will soon be in just a few uh, weeks for Jesus. But we live in a stat, we live in a status, sorry, uh, we have been um, cured of the power of sin and the punishment of sin, but the presence of sin is still with us, right? We are redeemed, but we are not yet fully redeemed and restored. And this is kind of the part of Jesus' life where he has been resurrect resurrected. He has defeated death, right? He is alive, he has risen, but he is not fully ascended. 
don't cling to me. I have more yet to do. I have more ministry to do. And thankfully he does because if it were just left to Mary, we know from historical context, eyewitness accounts, that he revealed himself to over 500 more people. Okay? 500 more people. Ultimately, this is incredible. I have a little chart of this. Easter morning, Easter afternoon, Easter evening, the following Sunday, the following month, he... He reveals himself to the disciples, to 500 people, his half-brother, disciples in Jerusalem, his disciples on the Mount Olivet. I love this. I don't know if you guys follow history at all, but I read this quote. I was like, oh, that's perfect for what I'm trying to uh, share here. Charles Coulson, um, he was a former White House counsel, served as the special counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. He went to jail for obstructing justice, and later on in life, he became a Christian, and he devoted the rest of his life to telling people about Jesus. Listen to this quote that he said. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. In this encourage you this morning i'm thankful that he defeated death he proved it by raising back to life and then he proves it again by showing himself to people this is some of the most factually based eyewitness historicity that we have this is incredible and we see how Mary ends. I have seen the Lord is the basis for evangelism. We see Mary, and we, he, we, she encounters him. She restores him. She gives, he gives her a mission. Go tell my brothers of what I've done, what I've told you, that I have risen. She does. She demonstrates, in my opinion, the most pure, the most perfect form of evangelism, sharing your faith. You, you know, seeing Christ rightly, remembering what he's done for you, being burdened, having compassion on others who live in the guilt and shame, knowing that you did too. And then you share the truth that until Christ, this was my story, but it isn't my story anymore. That's the basis of sharing your faith. The big picture here and the proper order of events is a follower of Christ and every day thereafter. He reveals himself to you. That leads you to confess that I am sad, I am in despair, I am needy. You see yourself rightly in front of a holy and perfect God. The only true response you need to have is to be broken, that you don't measure up to that. That leads you then to hear him say your name, to be accepted into his love met by him, met by his presence. What do you do then? 
out of overwhelming joy and delight, knowing you're not guilty anymore, you fall at his feet and you wash his feet with your tears and wipe it with your hair as worship. And out of your worship comes mission because other people have yet to experience what you've experienced out of this truth. This is the the cycle of the Christian life. This is what it looks like. So in conclusion, my hope today is that you've seen the beauty in this woman's testimony. You're both encouraged and challenged, convicted by her faith. As you look at the posture of her heart, you look at the purity of her devotion, that you would see, I'm not there. That's okay. But let's move forward in genuine humility and gratitude. Those are the things that mark people that come into contact with Christ. And we see that very clearly with Mary. So I thank God that he saved Mary Magdalene. Amen? Pray with me that we would see how broken and needy we truly are and how unimaginably loved and accepted we are when we submit to Jesus as Lord. Let's pray.